Hello, I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Coming up after the news, it's Philosophy Talk. Time to throw ourselves a party, Ken. What are we celebrating? We're turning 100 today. Speak for yourself. I'm a long way from 100, and you look like you're not quite 100 yet. Not 100 years, 100 episodes of Philosophy Talk. Oh, 100 episodes of your wit and wisdom and my passion and profundity. Not to mention my humility. We're going to invite a few of our all-time favorite guests to stop by and help us look back at where we've been and look forward to where we're going. And we want you to join in too, listeners. Tell us about your favorite moments from episodes past. Tell us what you'd like to hear in our next 100 episodes. Join the party as Philosophy Talk celebrates turning 100 after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of 91.7 KALW, local innovative public radio for San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the lovely Stanford campus. And from that oasis of free, untrammeled thought, we we migrate to this oasis of the air, and from the air to the internet via our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org. And John, I've already weighed in a little bit on our, our topic for today, the 100th episode of Philosophy Talk. I've been ruminating about our past and future. Well, what about you? What are you thinking about our past and future? Well, the way I look at it is this, Ken. I mean, for 100... Tuesdays, we've been coming up here, spending a couple hours at KALW, shooting a big hole in our Tuesdays. That's true. And expecting listeners around San Francisco, around the peninsula, and indeed around the world to join us for an hour. What do we think we're doing? Well, I'll tell you one thing we're doing. We're having a great time. I mean, I, I don't know about you, uh, but philosophy, philosophizing, is really fun. And doing it in the midst of all these smart people, having them join in, all these cool guests, it's just, it's like the best public kick I've ever had in my life. Now, let's let's uh, emphasize that when you and I talk about philosophy, what we mainly have in mind is not reading stuff written a long time ago or even a few weeks ago or discussing the thoughts of other people, but doing philosophy, taking any subject whatsoever and say, well, what are the basic assumptions? What are the basic concepts? How are they supposed to work? How do we know? What do we mean? Questions like that. And it's not only fun, it's actually pretty useful, don't oh, you think? I, I agree. I mean, I, I have to tell you, I think that our culture, our public discourse especially, is utterly debased. It's full of BS. It's full of mendacious, misleading propaganda. It's meant to manipulate rather than enlighten and inform, you know, and shock and entertain, but never really give you meat for a sober reflection. And, and it's a disease that we've caught. And I think philosophy is one elixir, one magical elixir for helping to cure that disease. Well, you know, I think in, in the days before radio, say in Greek times, there probably was a lot of garbage being spoken all over Athens. Probably That's some, probably you know, uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly, Zorba the O'Reilly or something was up there pontificating away. But there was also Socrates and his friends doing philosophy. That's what's endured. That's what's lasted. Now, Ken, I, I knew Socrates, no, I, yeah, <laughs> and I you're no it. Socrates, but we do our best. And <laughs> yes. I think it's, I think it's not only important and fun. It actually has some, it, it ought to be politically relevant. Oh, right. I mean, think of our first episode, Bush's pre doctrine of preemptive self-defense. A doctrine supposed to be kind of a systematic body of evidence and belief that kind of hangs together. But that was just, that so-called doctrine is a bunch of, well, 
hooey. Yeah, that's a nice word for it. Uh, assumptions, pictures, and undigested thoughts. And I thoughts. think we helped to expose that. Yeah, I suppose we did. Uh, and, you know, but one thing that was uh, put to rest on that first show was my fear that we wouldn't have any listeners or that they wouldn't participate. Uh, I remember a woman called in. I had used the analogy of Marshall Dillon on the streets of Dodge City. If he draws first, that's preemption. If he draws second, that's self-defense. And she said, well, this was just after the uh, not too long after the Iraq war started. <laughs> what if he draws and instead of shooting the guy at the end of the street that's trying to shoot him, shoots the shopkeeper up right. on the side that uh, that he never liked very much. <laughs> So we got some smart, uh, some we, smart. We got great listeners and yeah. great callers. You know, and we not just have. You know, it's not just we have great listeners and great callers. I think philosophy itself is in really good hands because the younger generation coming up, taking up philosophy, they're also really, really sharp. Our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Stryker, actually asked some of our own graduate students about the modern appeal of philosophy. She files this report. In honor of Philosophy Talk's 100th episode, I asked several graduate students of philosophy about the central issue that occupies their minds. The issue that I spend most of my time working on is intersubjectivity. So how do people know about one another? How do people perceive one another? One example that I like to give is uh, an in-joke, right? You'll say something, the other person will say something else, and you'll sort of feed off each other and build off each other until you sort of, you know, you have rutabaga at the end, right? And every time you say rutabaga, you and your friend just, you know, crack up laughing and you both sort of know what that means. Um, helping people understand how their relationships with other people work, um, that's sort of where I'm going with my work. My dissertation is on the topic of self-deception for example, when people go to the gambling casino convinced that they're going to win all their money back. Well, my question is, what is the mental state of a person who's deceiving him or herself? Where does the capacity for this mental state come from in humans? It seems like knowledge contributes to the evolutionary fitness of human beings. But on the other hand, if that's the case, why wasn't the capacity for self-deception weeded out? Philosophers like to think of themselves as being very rational people, and philosophers like to think of the study of philosophy as the study of rationality. And it's usually not very clear what that entails, what that amounts to. Usually when philosophers try to explain what rationality is, they connect it up with justification. So they say something that we do or something that we believe is justified, and then we're being rational. And there are a lot of issues there, and I think philosophers are very often quick to just say, well, we understand what rationality is, we understand why it's good to be rational, and then let's look at all these other things about what kinds of beliefs, for example, are justified. But I think we need to do more ground-clearing work on what exactly rationality is, especially in the context of personal choices and personal decisions. What I'm working on is trying to figure out what it is that we do when we ask ourselves what to do. So basically the issue of practical deliberation or practical reasoning. So for example, a decision that a lot of people have to face is when they leave college, they have to decide what career to go into. And human beings seem very different in that they think about what they should do. And I'm trying to explore what that means. Metaphors can connect any two items in a sense. And the problem of how to do computations when 
any piece of information that you have in your brain could possibly be relevant to the computation is a very tricky problem because if you suddenly are presented with a completely new situation that you've never seen before, you have to figure out a new way of interacting. And humans can do that really, really well, and robots can do that not at all. That's sort of the central question that I'm interested in now. It sort of grew out of this interest in metaphor and language. There's still a lot of room for stepping back from our preconceived notions and evaluating them again, and philosophy is a place where we can do that. From the front lines of philosophy, I'm Polly Stryker. Rutabaga. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.